The date is the 8th of October, 2020, and our guest today is Brendan Nyhan, professor of government at Dartmouth College. I'm Jack Nicastro, a 23 filling in for Dhruv. Thanks for joining us, Professor. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. You're very welcome. Before we get started, I'm sure our listeners would like to hear more about your past research as well as your current areas of specialization and interest. Sure. Well, I'm a professor of government. Uh, I specifically study misperceptions and misinformation uh, about politics in particular, but I've also done research on misinformation about healthcare, uh, especially in the area of vaccines. Wonderful. Well, our questions pertain to those very subjects today, so you're uh, the perfect guest to have. So to begin, according to data compiled by the Center for the History of Medicine at the University of Michigan, the Spanish flu helped to depress voter turnout by 10 percentage points compared to past elections. Do you believe that the coronavirus pandemic will impact voter turnout similarly? That's not my expectation, although it's always hard to know what the effect of an event is relative to some unobserved counterfactual. We expect very high turnout in this election. Early voting is off the charts by historical standards. Voters report very high interest in voting. So I would expect a high turnout. What, we, what, what will be harder to know, however, is how high turnout would have been if the coronavirus hadn't happened. That's the tricky counterfactual that we would have to think about. It's possible turnout will be up in this election compared to 2016, but it might have been up even more if it weren't for the coronavirus. And that's the kind of question that political scientists especially will be looking at after the election. But my expectation is high levels of turnout, um, record numbers of, of ballots cast by mail in particular because of the pandemic. That's the other most obvious way that the coronavirus will, will shape how people participate. But I do expect very high levels of participation. That makes sense. In fact, I personally mailed in my absentee ballot back to Hanover just yesterday. And actually, I have another question about that. Um, given concerns about the integrity of mail-in voting raised by the president in particular, is mail-in voting as secure and legitimate as in-person voting or absentee ballots such as the one I mailed in yesterday and which the president himself um, partakes in? Mail voting is just another word for absentee voting. It's just as secure. It's the same thing. Um, there's a whole, there, there's, there are a whole series of steps that election officials take to secure the process of voting by mail. It's extremely secure. Voter fraud is extremely rare, regardless of whether it's in person or by mail. It's not zero, but we're talking handfuls of handfuls of cases out of millions and millions and millions of votes cast. So this is an exceptionally secure process. There's no reason to think that the 2020 election will be any different. The main concern we should have about voting by mail is not voter fraud, but instead election officials handling the potentially unprecedented volume of ballots cast by mail and uh, processing those and reporting the results in a timely and organized fashion. That's a difficult challenge for our election system, which is somewhat rickety to begin with. And there's a lot we could do to address that problem. It's, it, it would be a very smart idea to focus on that real problem as opposed to the fictitious problem of widespread voter fraud. Well, that's actually a beautiful segue into the next question, which was going to be, are all states equally prepared to administer and process mail-in ballots, given your expectation that there will be record turnout in this um, unusual manner? 
almost surely not. There are states that have voted exclusively by mail for years. They're going to be very well prepared for this. Oregon and Colorado were already voting by mail, for instance. They're going to continue to do so. They'll be ready uh, to handle this. It's the jurisdictions that haven't uh, had high levels of voting by mail in the past and now are going to get a lot of mail ballots to process that we might worry about. And that sometimes will differ in how prepared those election officials are at the local level. It won't simply be a matter of the state level, although the states also are in some cases playing a key role in setting the rules for how mail ballots may be counted or when. Um, And in some cases, those rules make it more difficult for local officials to complete the count as soon as possible um, on election day and thereafter. So that's a that's a key factor to to watch for is the action that's currently taking place at the state level where people are reexamining those rules and trying to think about how they could be changed in a way that preserves the integrity of the election but allows election officials to be ready to complete the count um, as soon as as possible so that we have a result um, and we don't have to wait weeks or months. That's certainly possible and everyone should be prepared for a a long count. Mail ballots just do take longer to count than in-person ballots, but there are steps we could take to move that process along. Another great segue. Um, speaking about discrepancies at the state and local level, um, do you think that, for example, Pennsylvania Republicans requesting that the Supreme Court block a lower court opinion allowing absentee ballots to be counted up to three days after the election threatens to disenfranchise laggardly voters in that state as opposed to others? Yeah, I'm not an election lawyer, so I don't have I don't have a specific take on the content of that claim. Um, I guess the worry I have is that voters not be burdened for voting by mail in a manner that is unfair to those who are unable to safely cast a vote in person or maybe even physically cast a vote. If you are able to mail your ballot on election day and you're able to vote in person on election day, that seems like you're treating those two people equally. If you're burning that person who's voting by mail by requiring their ballot to have been received by election day, that seems like you're differentially um, restricting access to the franchise, depending on how people are able to vote. And I think we should be especially sensitive to those concerns now when our older friends and relatives may be worried about the safety risks associated with in-person voting. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. How do you think the pandemic and our country's response to it will affect voting moving forward? For example, Delaware experimented earlier this year with internet voting to allow disabled residents to submit their primary election ballots electronically for the first time. But as NPR reports, they scrapped it amid concerns about security and public confidence. Um, Do you believe if confidence in technology improves that states will embrace mail-in voting or even institute a virtual voting mechanism. Securing internet voting is a very difficult problem. The experts that I know are quite skeptical about that process and don't want to move forward with it until it's vastly more secure than is currently possible. Um, I would recommend to people the many expert reports on the problems with internet voting that you can actually find on the internet. Um, So I would say I'm 
um, pessimistic about internet voting, at least in the short term. The expert consensus is that it's difficult to secure appropriately. Mail balloting, though, I, I do expect that we'll see this trend continue. People tend to follow their past behavior in the future. There may be some people who have previously voted in person who will now vote by mail, who will think about whether they should do so in the future and in that way create a new habit that potentially increases mail balloting levels in the future. So while mail balloting may not be as high after the pandemic as it is now, you could expect some kind of upward trend to continue and persist. Yes. So you've expounded upon the myriad benefits of mail-in voting, but I was also wondering, are there any aspects of it that threaten to delegitimize the election of the next president or compromise the transition of power from one to another? For example, you brought up that it could take um, several weeks to to months um, for all the mail-in ballots to be counted. Um, Do you foresee major problems arising from that? It's very much a concern, that period between election night and when the result is known, if it's not known on that evening, is one of particular vulnerability for our democracy. There's no requirement that we know the result on election night. In the past, of course, it wasn't possible to do so. The count took longer. We've become accustomed in the television age to having a result that evening, but the uh, shift towards mail-in ballots that we've been discussing will potentially push the resolution of the outcome back. In that period, we need to remain calm about the workings of our democracy. The counting of the vote is a kind of uh, sacred ritual that we should respect. It doesn't mean it's going to be done perfectly. There will be errors. There will be problems. But um, what I worry about is misinformation especially the president, directly attacking the legitimacy of that process, saying the election is being stolen, saying that he's already won the election, and so forth. That post-election night period is one that could be especially dangerous if elites are irresponsible, and it's going to be uh, up to every American to um, remain calm and support and respect the peaceful transfer of power. Um, you know, it's terrible that we have to think about that, but that's unfortunately where we are right now. And it's in, you know, it's in part a function of the behavior of the current incumbent in the White House, but it's also a function of this unusual election, which is uh, putting stress on our electoral system, just like the president has been putting stress on so many other political institutions. That's certainly important to emphasize to our viewers to respect the transition of power and to you know, permit for however long it takes for all the, for example, mail-in ballots uh, to be counted to to wait that out. But just positively speaking, um, I don't think anybody will disagree with you on your normative stance there. How do you believe Americans will actually respond if there were, let's say, a split between the in-person vote and the mail-in vote? Um, for example, if there were a, a red mirage um, how, how do you see Americans responding to that? Well, it depends on the messages that they get. I think the American people, if they get messages from people they trust on both sides, that this process is normal, that the count is legitimate, that they will largely respect that process and support it. If elites are more irresponsible, it could be much worse. 
So to give you an example of the responsible behavior, I think we should encourage and support the Republican Secretary of State of Ohio said this week that any shift in the vote count during that period is normal and not an indication of anything nefarious taking place. That's exactly the kind of behavior we need. People affirming legitimacy of the process and preparing people for the possibility that those vote totals may change as the count is, is underway. We need to hear that from everybody on both sides of the aisle. Um, I would say particularly those folks at the state level who may be trusted in their, in their state, in their local communities, and may be a bit more insulated from um, national politics and the, you know, the fight over the president that dominates um, so much of our political conversation. It would be great for those state officials to say, no, we're running legitimate election here. We're conducting a count. All of our you know, residents who cast a legitimate vote have a right to have that vote counted, and we're going to complete that process. And however the count turns out, that's how it turns out. Whether we'll actually see that kind of behavior, I don't know, but I hope so. Um, and uh, it's going to be important um, for every citizen to um, display that kind of behavior and demand it. Now, a few people um, may take things further, and th there's real worry about at least sporadic political violence, and that's a great concern. Um, I, I don't know what to say about that except to say um, it's a very worrisome prospect, and it's that's why it's going to be so important for political elites who folks listen to to behave responsibly. Well, hopefully all political elites and elites in all, all other spheres of American life and perhaps in internationally behave uh, according to the precedent that Ohio has set. That would be uh, wonderful. And one final question before we open up the floor to anything you'd like to just uh, pontificate about. Um, how do you believe Americans would respond if there were a split between the popular and electoral vote similar to what happened in 2016? Do you think that there'd be a similar response? Or given the current um, extenuating circumstances of the uh, current age we're in, do you think that there could be more political violence? Like you just said, you expect there to be some sporadic political violence. Um, do you think there'll be more unrest, conflict, or worse? I don't know. That's a good question. So I actually um, conducted a study with Professor Carey and uh, colleagues in the group called Brightline Watch that I'm one of the um, organizers of that monitors the state of U.S. democracy. We asked Americans about a hypothetical outcome of the 2020 election, and we randomly varied which party won the election and whether that party also won the popular vote or they lost the popular vote. Um, and what we found was uh, that the winner was seen as less legitimate if they lost a popular vote, um, but that effect was concentrated uh, among Democrats. So it is Democrats, the party that has lost the presidency twice while winning the popular vote um, in the you know since 2000, um, who saw elections as less legitimate when the popular vote winner lost. I would expect the same. If that happened again, I would expect Democrats to be um, very upset. How far that would go, I don't know. Um, you know, I think there's been increasing interest on the Democratic side in moving towards a popular vote system. I think Democrats would probably move in that direction much more aggressively 
if what what we call in our study an electoral inversion happened for a third time in five presidential elections. Um, that would be an indication that we're moving further and further uh, away from a system that broadly reflects, um, you know, the will of the people. The Electoral College is a kind of rickety mechanism for conducting elections. It doesn't actually follow the intent of the founders and how it operates. We've always had this risk that it will uh, throw the election to the popular vote loser. It didn't happen uh, very often for a long time, but now it's happening more frequently and it's systematically advantaging one party. And that's, again, going to put a lot of strain on the system if that result continues to take place. So that's certainly something I'm watching closely, especially because early indications suggested that given the configuration of the states, it's possible for President Trump to win the Electoral College while losing the popular vote by an even wider margin than he did in 2016. So that popular vote loss could be even greater. Um, And as those two outcomes diverge further and further, people may see them as less and less legitimate. What they do about that or how they act on it, I don't know. Well, that is a very interesting and equally concerning answer, uh, but I appreciate being being made aware of, of the reality of the situation because I haven't heard or, or read a ton about that. Um, and again, I, I know you're a very busy man, but I'd just like to give you the opportunity to speak on anything that you feel uh, was missed out on in this conversation. No, I don't think we've missed anything um, on these subjects. You know, I guess I would just close by encouraging everyone listening to to go vote um, and to affirm the peaceful transfer of power, regardless of how the election turns out or whether your preferred party wins. That's the core of democracy. And we need to renew our joint commitment to playing by those rules if we are to keep this democracy in this country that we've been uh, lucky enough to in- inherit for all of its flaws, it would be a tragedy uh, to lose that fundamental aspect of of the system, right? And to and to see democratic erosion continue to a level that the peaceful transfer of power was threatened. That's a um, a terrible prospect, one we should all oppose, regardless of which side of the aisle we're on. And um, you know, I just hope everyone can agree that um, a joint commitment to that process is critical to addressing all the problems that we face in this country, however you view them. I think that is the perfect note upon which to end. So thanks for joining us, Professor Nyhan. It's been a pleasure. And to our audience, thanks for listening, and please join us next time.